Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series on the genealogies of Scripture. And this time, Peter Lightheart, James P. John, and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss 1 Chronicles 2-5 through and the genealogies of Judah. Before we jump in, we wanted to remind you to sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race. This is a weekly newsletter where we catch you up on all things Theopolis, including the latest podcast, articles, and videos. And when you sign up, we'll send you a free ebook from Peter Lightheart. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing the genealogies of First Chronicles 2 through 5. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James B. John. And uh, Brian Motes is in the background monitoring our, our, our technical matters and uh, making sure everything gets recorded and delivered well. Uh, we are in the middle of a series of studies in the genealogies of the Bible. We've looked at the genealogies of the book of Genesis in some detail. Uh, we've looked at the genealogy in Exodus 6 which is the climactic genealogy in the Pentateuch, taking the genealogy that begins with Adam and Genesis and bringing it to uh, Aaron. Uh, and last week, we started looking at the genealogies that are recorded in First Chronicles 1 through 9. And we focused on chapter 1, but also talked about the way the genealogies function within the book of Chronicles and why the, why the genealogies occupy such a large place. Uh, I suggested, and, and I filled this out a little bit in my Chronicles commentary, but I suggested that Chronicles is retelling the story of the kingdom of Judah, but using the template of uh, the earlier history of the Bible from Genesis up through the book of Judges uh, as a um, as a kind of typological frame for telling the story of the monarchy. And so the early chapters of First Chronicles are function as the uh, Genesis section of the book of Chronicles. And then it's going to, the Chronicles is going to go through an Exodus portion with David and then go through a period of uh, upheaval uh, during the time of uh, the monarchy with various kings and uh, which resembling the book of Judges. And then comes to a climax with the, uh, the new David, the new Solomon, who turns out to be a Gentile ruler instead of a descendant of David. So um, that's one of the reasons why I suggested the the genealogies of Chronicles are so long and so complex and why they're such a play such a large part. And uh, given that setting, given the fact that we're uh, in a book about the the history of the monarchy of Judah, the Davidic dynasty, uh, it's fitting that the genealogies spend a lot of time at the beginning on the genealogy of Judah, the royal tribe. And that's what uh, those are the that's uh, a genealogy we have covering really four chapters from chapter two to chapter four. Chapter two begins with a list of the sons of Israel that are listed in term in uh, according to their uh, birth mothers. So you have the sons of Leah at the beginning, the sons of Leah's made at the end, and then you have the the Rachel children in the middle, uh, right at the middle of the of this uh, list at the beginning of chapter two. You have the two direct sons of Rachel, uh, Joseph and Benjamin. Uh, but then after you have that initial list, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 2, you're often running with uh, genealogy of Judah. 
Uh, one of the things that I, I, I think is striking about the genealogy of Judah, though, we'll highlight some uh, specifics in a moment, but this is the royal tribe. Uh, kings have been introduced already in the book of uh, Chronicles. Uh, Esau has kings. Edom has kings. At the end of First Chronicles 1, beginning in verse, verse 43, we have a list of the kings that descend from Esau. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any, uh, any king of the sons of Israel reigned. And then it lists them. And what's kind of jarring about that is the emphasis on the death of these kings. All the other characters that have been listed earlier in First Chronicles 1 died. We know they died. They, even the, the oldest of the original humans died after uh, several centuries at least. But uh, we're not told that. We're just told, given the names and given the names of their sons and then their sons' sons and so on. But when we get to this list of kings, we suddenly have this emphasis on death. Uh, which recurs immediately when we start looking at the genealogy of Judah, the royal tribe within Israel. Immediately you have people dying, and not just dying, but people being put to death by Yahweh. In fact, the first time we have the Yahweh's name used in uh, the book of Chronicles is in First Chronicles 2.3. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, so he put him to death. So Yahweh is the executioner of the wicked. It's the first time he shows up in the book. And he's doing that within the royal tribe. So you have this uh, this uh, association both from the genealogy of Edom and then with the uh, beginning of the genealogy of Judah, this association between royalty and death that is going to be uh, overcome in various ways through the course of the genealogy of, uh, of Judah, that uh, Judah is the royal tribe uh, that God keeps rescuing from, from death. Shall I elaborate? <laughs> <laughs> I have things to say, but not necessarily following on from that. Okay. There's several ways that this comes out. There's the, a number of threads of the line of Judah that end abortively. You have the line of Zerah that's given here. Tamar has, uh, gives birth to Perez and Zerah, and then the line of uh, Perez, Hezron, Hamil, sons of Zerah were so on. And then the son of Carmi was Achar, the trouble of Israel, that's Achan. Son of Ethan was Azariah. Really, the, you, don't have any, you don't have any further descendants beyond a couple of generations. And you have this, this reference to the, uh, to the uh, descendant of uh, Zerah, uh, Achan, who violates the ban, uh, commits uh, what the uh, book of Chronicles calls a, a mayal, an act of sacrilege, seizing the Lord's things. Uh, and he's he violates the ban and he's put to death, just just like Ur, Judah's firstborn, was put to death by the Lord. Now you have another, you have a, a line of Judah that is aborted aborted because of the uh, because of the sin of Achan, and then you have a number of places in the genealogy of Judah where there's a a, a reference to a particular descendant, uh, and then it says, "And he had no sons." That recurs a number of times uh, in the middle of uh, chapter two. Uh, for example, verse 32, the sons of Jada, the brother of Shammai, were Jether and Jonathan. Jether died without sons. A couple verses later, verse 34, Shishan had no sons, only daughters. Uh, and that recurs a number of times in that in the rest of this chapter that you have, you have lines of Judah that end without uh, any sons to carry on the name. You have daughters, but no sons to carry on the name. Uh, and in a couple of instances, at least, the uh, line is revived by the incorporation of somebody from outside Israel. So, for example, 
the uh, verse 34 I just read, Shishan had no sons, only daughters. Shishan had an Egyptian servant whose name was Jara, and Shishan gave his daughter to Jarha, his servant, in marriage, and she bore him Antai. So he has no sons. He takes this Egyptian and gives his daughter to this Egyptian, and then the line continues through this now Egyptian, Jewish, Egyptian, Hebrew marriage. It's, uh, I, again, it, it, this is this is really the, the origin of the whole line of uh, Judah, is that you have the incorporation of Tamar into the genealogy, and then her sons are the ones that are going to be the descendants uh, that lead up to David. And you bring in uh, Tamar is presumably a, gen- a Gentile Canaanite who's brought in, and it's the the incorporation of this Gentile that revives this that revives the the line. Uh, same same in this book of Ruth is all about that. The incorporation of the Moabite woman is what revives this family uh, and gives Naomi uh, children and descendants and raises up descendants for her husband and for her sons. But it's by the incorporation of the Gentiles. So you, you have a couple things going on there. I'm suggesting one is that Judah keeps facing the threat of death and extinction. Uh, this this line does it does from the beginning, but the Lord keeps rescuing them from that, so that the line of Judah does continue, and at least in uh, several cases that li- the line continues because of the incorporation of Gentiles into the line, and that gives new life. I won't elaborate on what I think are the kind of typological dimensions of that. I think that's uh, that's pointing to the uh, that's pointing to the, the the character. I mean, it's a it's a type a type of the gospel that. Uh, uh, that the line of David is going to be revived by the incorporation of Gentiles. Hmm. Continuing the thought of some of those dead ends, I think it's interesting the way in which the Judean genealogy actually mirrors chapter one's genealogy in terms of its shape. We we go down in chapter one quite rapidly from Adam through to Noah, and then it breaks out into three headwaters, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, two of which don't go anywhere but then you get an, another vertical genealogy taking us down and in in the same way in chapter two we, we get from judah down fairly quickly to hezron and then it breaks out into three uh Yerachmiel, ram and, and this fellow um kelubai i've got here i take him to be the same as the caleb in chapter two mm-hmm. 18 yeah. but two of those lines don't go anywhere it's the line through ram which sort of takes us down to um david again things sort of fan out horizontally uh, at david just as they do in the case of abraham in chapter one um but then with the selection of solomon um and i suppose there's some gentile input there through bathsheba um Mm -hmm. but with solomon onwards it it sort of goes down into a single stream again And, and so you have this whole sort of replaying of the global history of chapter one but internal mm-hmm. to judah's line right which which would make some uh, some theological sense that uh, the the line of judah is kind of a concentrated it's it's where the history of the world is being concentrated the history of humanity is being concentrated and so the patterns of the history of judah are going to be uh, are uh, microcosmic they're recapitulations of the the global history do you think there's any relationship between the split in the line of Shem with Peleg and Joktan and um, hmm. Perez and Zerah? Yeah. Do you have uh, beyond the fact that the fact that there's a split? Do you do you have uh, other thoughts about how that plays out? Not particularly. Um, but there is a there's one that really takes things forward, one that doesn't, and then there's also the way 
um, you have other details like names that occur in certain places that Sheila's name that is present in um, the vicinity of both and other features like that that are just I'm wondering if there's anything more going on there mm-hmm. yeah that might be a particular instance of what James was just talking about that uh, you have a similar patterns going on in the genealogy of Judah that uh, recapitulate the patterns of the the uh, universal genealogy from the earlier from the earlier part of the book and those patterns also play forward as well I think you see the same thing uh, in the genealogy of David more particularly that there are certain features of Judah that come out in David as well you have a Tamar that's mentioned in association with David as his daughter and then you also have a Bathsheba who's his wife just as there's a Bathsheba in the genealogy of Judah mm-hmm. you mean as in Genesis 38 do you mean or no there's a Bathsheba is mentioned in chapter 2 in verse 2 in verse 3 oh, I see sorry but then Bathsheba is also the name given to Bathsheba in um I see yeah chapter 3 verse 5 yeah yeah I suppose what we're getting here is a fairly messy human side of sort of God's divine elective purposes so we have sort of secondary causes if you like we have reasons for why particular lines die out the sin of Achan or Akar, for instance, or Ur being put to death, or a line just sort of going nowhere and, and ending in no sons, or, or or something like that. Um, and this is, I guess, the the human side of of, of the bigger choosing of God. Right. The, yeah. The uh, yeah. Again, and the the Lord working through uh, working within a world where death and failure and sin are powerful and he's still accomplishing his purposes within that. I was going to mention a couple of things about uh, the some of the numerological things that seem to be going on here. We, we noted last time that the uh, you have a, a couple of 10 generation lists in chapter one connecting Adam to Noah and then Noah to Abraham. Uh, and I think those fittingly line up because we, we have kind of three different versions of humanity, as it were, that are being presented within the book of Genesis and within the genealogy of First Chronicles. Uh, there's an Adamic humanity, there's a new humanity with Noah, and then Abram is going to be the head of yet another humanity within, with, within the nations rather than starting over. And David then is also a tenth. He's uh, uh, listed as a, a tenth descendant from Judah in the list of sons of David that we have in uh, Finding that in chapter three, I guess there are nineteen different children that are listed. Solomon being the center of that list, which means he's the tenth listed, uh, which puts him in that line of uh, kind of heads of humanity, as it were. We also have sevens. Uh, the we have the obvious uh, David is the seventh of uh, Jesse's sons, and uh, I think uh, Solomon is associated with a seven at some point. In the uh, oh, no, uh, David is the seventh from Ram, and then the seventh son from Jesse. That's the that was the uh, connection I was going to make. So there, there's some numerological play in the way that the the generations of descent work that links back to the setup that we have in chapter one, where every tenth generation is introducing a uh, renewal of the human race through a new Adam, and David is David is playing that role here in uh, the genealogy of Judah. A further example of that. Peter, um, Abraham in chapter one has 
really a pool of 20 descendants who could continue his line. There is Isaac, Ishmael, um, Ishmael's 12 uh, sons, and then there are six sons through Keturah. Um, and that seems to parallel, loosely at least, um, David's case in where we have listed 19 sons, and then it's also said that he, um, that he had Tamar um, as well. So there is this sort of uh, pool of 20 possible uh, continuations of the line from which w- one is picked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One feature of David's family that had never really occurred to me before I noticed it in Second Samuel 17 is the fact that Abigail, who's the sister of David, is not actually his is not actually the daughter of Jesse. She's the daughter of Nahash. Um, but she's described as the sister of Zeruiah and the mother of Amasa in verse 25 of Second Samuel 17. So it seems that David had a blended family. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, we get little bits of interesting information like that, don't we? Sc- scattered through the genealogy in, in um, one Chronicles two. I can't find exactly where it is now, but it, oh, it's a uh, verse ten. Um, Narshon is referred to as the prince of the sons of Judah, which is um, just sort of dropped in there as a as a detail. But historically, uh, I guess that would explain probably why Boaz is referred to as a man of, of significant status um, in Ruth's story, for instance. And um, uh, it shows, I guess, there was a particular um, nobility to to the line of Jesse. It's worth making a comment about the um, uh, the focus that Chronicles places on Judah's genealogy. After all, Judah is not the firstborn, and yet he gets first place in the genealogy. We find that the tension there is evident already in the list of chapter two, and you have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah in two one, and you think, well, he's going to follow the birth order, or the at least the order that he's just given. Then you're going to start with Reuben, but in fact, of course, you start with Judah, who is uh, elevated to become the 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 first in the first in the genealogical line. So there's a that reflects back to the uh, book of Genesis where. Uh, you have the first three sons of Jacob are disqualified in one way or another from being being head, uh, and then Judah is elevated to become the, uh, the the kind of replacement firstborn. But Chronicles actually Chronicles acknowledges that history, but also the complexity of, of primacy within Israel. The beginning of chapter five, uh, you have this. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, then parenthetically, for he was the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So there you have a kind of three different modes of primacy. Uh, Reuben is the firstborn and, and has, has a kind of primacy because of that, uh, that physical biological fact. Uh, Joseph is the one that gets the birthright, so the, the kind of double inheritance of uh, Manasseh and Ephraim that's given to the firstborn. That Joseph inherits that, and so he is given a, a sort of primacy as well. But then verse 2 acknowledges Judah prevailed over his brothers, and the leader comes from him, but the birthright still belongs to Joseph. So you have this complex kind of primacy. Uh, the genealogy itself gives primacy to the uh, to the descendants of Judah, uh, but that 
those verses at the beginning of chapter five show the complications around the around that issue. You could argue maybe that the Levites also have a firstborn status as the dedicated ones of Israel. Right. And you know, yeah, they're they're given that that place in numbers when they're tallied up and are uh, given a, a, there's a, a, a direct exchange of the firstborn that are supposed to be devoted to the Lord and the Levites are taking their place. Uh, we, I think we probably should say something about the, uh, the well-known story of Jabez, which occurs in chapter four, probably the best known portion of this, uh, this uh, section of Chronicles. This is in, uh, still in the genealogy of Judah. And this is one of the places where it gives a little snippet of uh, narrative. It's not simply a continuation of the story. When, when we looked at the kind of stillborn lines of Judah, uh, that's, that's embedded within the genealogy that so-and-so died without any sons or the Lord killed him. Uh, there isn't, those, you could say those are very small snippets of narrative, but they're very tiny. Uh, this one takes up a couple of verses. So there's a there's a it um, kind of sticks out from the surrounding context where you just have these lists of names. There's several th- interesting things going on here. Of course, that's uh, Jabez is famous for his prayer. Uh, his mother calls him Jabez because she bore him with pain, and Jabez uh, has some uh, relationship to the word for pain. But then he calls on the Lord, "Oh, that Thou would bless me indeed, enlarge my border, and that Thy hand might be with me." And thou wouldst keep me from harm that it may not pain me. And God granted him what he requested. So Jabez, though, has the, though he has this origin, this origin of pain. And the, the, the language suggests, uh, don't remember exactly, I'm pretty sure that the Hebrew term is the same term for the pain in childbirth that is uh, the curse in Genesis 3. So you have Jabez who's coming, out, coming into this cursed world uh, connected with the, uh, the pain of Eve's childbirth. Uh, but then that origin is not the final destiny that he's going to that he's going to enjoy. The Lord is going to deliver him from that, and he's going to keep him from harm and enlarge his border. So, uh, because the because the Lord intervenes and again gives his request because he prays, his origins are not setting out a fixed destiny. The Lord intervenes, and I think this probably also Jabez is highlighted because of the link between, or the analogy that we can see between Jabez's little story and what the Lord is going to do for Israel and Judah in general. He, he is, in answer to their prayers, he's going to enlarge their border, return them to the land. He's going to uh, take away the harm. He's going to take away the pain of exile, and he's going to bring them back and uh, have a resettlement of the land. So I think um, within the within the sweep of the story of Chronicles, the prayer of Jabez is a uh, a little preview of what uh, Judah as a whole uh, will enjoy if they do what Jabez does, which is call on the Lord for help, and then the Lord will deliver them from their from the pain of exile. There are other snippets beyond um, the more narrative ones, things like the fact that um, Sheila, the son of Judah, does have a son. He has a couple of sons, and his firstborn is called Ur, which is interesting that he has a son and names him after his um, oldest brother who dies. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That's a pattern that we see elsewhere, not in the case of him dying necessarily, but um, Yerachmael's first son is, is Ram, and then he also had a brother called Ram. And, and that is a pattern quite common in, in the, the uh, early early times of, of Judah. Mm. 
Do you have any thoughts on the order of the sons of Israel that are given in two verses um, one to two? Yeah, as I said before, I think they're ordered by the birth mother. So then the the sons of Leah are at the beginning. Uh, the sons of Leah's maid are at the end. And then in between, you have the sons who are born both of Rachel and of Rachel's maid. Um, and Particularly thinking about the sandwiching of um, Joseph and Benjamin by the two sons of Bilhah born before them. Right. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's a, uh, structurally, it's chiastic with Joseph and Benjamin at the center. Those are the the two direct sons of uh, of Rachel that, uh, uh, that are at the center of a small chiasm. Uh, beyond that, um, uh, I didn't have any. I don't have any further thoughts beyond this. Just the structural comment. I, I was going to point out too that the uh, uh, the genealogy of Judah goes through chapter four, verse twenty three, and then you have the genealogy of Simeon, uh, genealogy of Reuben, uh, uh, Reuben, and then the genealogy of Gad. That's given in uh, those are both in chapter five. Those are quite brief. But I, one thing I wanted to, to highlight about the uh, you have another narrative section in uh, chapter five with Reuben and Gad, and it involves also the half tribe of Manasseh uh, in chapter five, verse 18. You have another uh, snippet of narrative that stands out. And again, I think that the role that it has, it's, it has a significant role within the, within the storyline of Chronicles as a whole, because uh, you have again, uh, similar, somewhat similar to the story of Jabez. You have, you have uh, Reuben, Gad and half tribe of Manasseh are, in dire straits, they go out to war against the Hagrites and others, uh, and uh, they are helped because, verse 20 says, they cried out to the Lord in battle. He, he was entreated. They trusted in him, and therefore they are able to gain the victory. So you again have this emphasis on danger uh, with Jabez. It's the pain of his uh, origin, uh, and he cries out, and the Lord delivers him. Here it's the danger of warfare. And they cry out and the Lord helps them, an emphasis on the Lord's responsiveness to prayer. That's going to be a major theme of the book of Chronicles. For the most part, though, um, the story is going to be about the failure of Judah to uh, make, you know, to call on the Lord when they're in these circumstances. And even that that unfaithfulness, I think, is highlighted by the way that chapter five begins and ends. Uh, Reuben is named as the firstborn, as I mentioned, but then he's deprived of that status because he defiles his father's bed. That's in verse one. So a sexual sin that deprives him of his inheritance. At the end of the chapter, uh, we find that these tribes, uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who have just been delivered, uh, in the, at least the, the story goes, they're, they're d- delivered from the Hagrites. But verse 25 says, they acted treacherously against the Lord. They played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land. So the Lord destroyed them, and then it goes into talking about the exile of the of the northern tribes. Uh, so, in a sense, the the Reubenites never get past Reuben's original sin. Uh, he commits an, a sexual violation directly and literally. Uh, they commit a spiritual they commit spiritual harlotry and uh, adultery by going after other gods. The little uh, hopeful note that we have in the middle of the chapter uh, is kind of canceled out by the by the frame of the chapter. Uh, if only uh, Israel would cry out to the Lord in the midst of their battles, he would uh, deliver them. But they don't. They go They go playing the harlot after other gods and uh, therefore are cast out of the land. Seem to have a similar thing with Simeon, which Simeon being judged by, um, by Jacob in chapter 49 of Genesis. 
and both Simeon and Levi are scattered among the more general people, but in different ways. Levi ends up being scattered as the priests and the Levites, whereas Simeon seems to have most of his residence in the area of Judah. But then there are also little bands of Simeonites that seem to go to different locations at the end of the section discussing um, his family, which is another interesting feature, the different ways that those fates could play out. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could make a quick comment on just some little historical snippets and connections that you get working the way out in some of these genealogies. Um, chapter 2 strikes me as very interesting, the way it ties together various things. We know Judah from Genesis is a sheep shearer, and prophetically he's connected to garments washed in wine and clothes in, in the blood of grapes and so forth. And those themes go forward. The, the name Zera actually is probably connected with redness or, or scarlet, and he's bound with a scarlet thread. And Hezron probably is connected with, with, with the greenness of grapes. And we, we get a lot of those things um, carried through in, in Caleb's um, line, or, or it might be Keluve, which is probably a basket weaver. And we get weaving um, mentioned among his sons, the names uh, Shovav and Ardon, probably connected to the weaving of fabrics. And her is, is could be a, a red dye. And it's her son, Betzalel, who, who is the maker of the tabernacle, actually. So um, we get this interest in, in fabrics and um, dyes, and that continues. Caleb has a son called uh, Rechem, that's to do with um, embroidery. And her is said to be the father of, of Bethlehem, which actually is where according to Jewish tradition, the fabrics for the tabernacle um, are made. And there are a whole bunch of interesting names around that as, as well. Caleb's wife is called Jeriot. That's, that's literally just the word for the curtains in the tabernacle. Um, Shoval and Salma are priestly garments. Um, Caleb has a, a son, Gazez, which is a, a sheep shearer. And, and there are all sorts of other things that tie into that, just contributing to this um picture of kind of fabrics and and dyes and and possibly the um production of a lot of the tabernacle material um based in and around bethlehem Hmm. very interesting and then you have the name alistair there in the genealogy uh, which means one who who knits the original hebrew meaning of alistair (laughs) that's right audacious knitter Uh, thanks, James. Any other comments before we close down? Did Did you have any um, suggestions, either of you, as to the structure of chapters two to four? I, I, I was just interested in the way in which it seems to come to a natural stop at the end of chapter three, really. We kind of go down to David and then from David all the way down to the um, end of the line of kings, really. Um, and then it sort of loops background in chapter four and seems to be more concerned with territories and cities um so you have jabez and people mm-hmm. father cities like you know beth raphar and, and so on but I, I don't know quite what the idea of that is nor do i if i ever had any ideas on it I, they're not coming back to me but that's a yeah that is an interesting observation that it would seem like uh, chapter three would be adequate and then yeah. you then you restart it again yeah I don't know if it's sort of meant to chart out the the actual population of Canaan or, or something and, and the 
way in which they acquired different territories. But yeah, I, I don't know if that sheds any light on anything. Another feature that I wonder about is the numbering that seems to be emphasised. You can list an order of names of sons or daughters of someone, but in a number of these you have lists and um, something like um, Eliab, his firstborn, Abinadab the second, Shimei the third, um, Shimei the third, Nathaniel, Nathanael the fourth, etc. And mm. I'm wondering what that is doing. It seems to be um, present in a number of the lists. And then a number of the lists end with a numbering. Um, is it just a device to help you remember the order or is there something more going on? I mean, it does sort of trivially tell you that it, that, that that is a list of um, sort of horizontal, that they are siblings rather than, um, you know, A, the son of B, the son of C, etc. So it, it's got a function there, but I, I'm sure there's more more to it than that. Me too. But what it is, I don't know. There doesn't seem, as far as I can see, in the um, uh, in Chronicles as a whole to be consistency in sometimes you have firstborns listed first and and sometimes you don't so like Esau is um uh yeah there doesn't seem to be a consistent pattern to that as far as i can tell it's not very enlightening but (laughs) (laughs) it was step back from the details of all this one of the things that we're looking at is uh, the establishment of genealogies for all the tribes of uh, of israel as we talked about in the Pentateuch, it's a, a genealogy that begins with Adam but then climaxes with the priests because the priests are going to be genealogically qualified from the time that Aaron is selected and on to the end of the temple. But here we're not limited to the to the priests or the Levites. We, we talked last time about how the priests and Levites are at the center of the genealogy. But all the different tribes have genealogies and uh, these family connections. And I suspect that part of what's going on there is a kind of elevation of the priestly character of Israel. That's already established back in the back at the Sinai Covenant, when the Lord says that Israel is His holy nation, a royal priesthood. But there is a there does seem to be an elevation that takes place. There's a more pronounced priestly role that Israelites in general will take around the time of the exile and the return from exile. That. Uh, Sinai principle of a royal priesthood gets more pronounced, and one of the things that's uh, being communicated by the by genealogies for all these different tribes is that all of them are somehow participating in this priestly vocation that Israel's been given to be the priests among the nations. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.